Welcome to Happily Ever After is just the beginning. Keeping your relationship not just together, but happy, and we mean truly happy, is part art and part science. You've come to the right place. Here's your host, Leslie Dorries. There are a couple of ways of thinking about marriage that men are encouraged to accept. The first is that once men have won the woman of their dreams, they no longer need to put any effort into keeping their lady love. The other, which I actually find more distressing, is that the secret to a happy marriage is for the husband to just learn to say, yes, dear. What lets the man off the hook for making the relationship work? And the second is that no matter what he feels about the relationship, he's supposed to just be quiet and accept it. Now, neither of these are good options if you want a healthy, loving relationship. So, big question for today, what's a guy to do? If you really want to create a good relationship, my guest, the director of the Northampton Center for Couples Therapy and licensed mental health counselor, Carrie Lusignan, has some really practical answers. So, Carrie, thank you so much for being on and talking about what I think is a really timely subject for guys in marriages. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you for having me. So a little bit ago, you wrote a recent Mm -hmm. article called Five Things That Men Can Do to Strengthen Their Relationship. And this appeared on a wonderful website. If people don't don't listen to it or go read it, they should. It's called The Good Men Project. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the target for men in marriage as something that's constantly moving. And I think this is getting worse, not better. So... Mm -hmm. Why is this happening, and what are men doing as a result? Mm-hmm. Well, why it's happening, I think, is pretty. That's a pretty big question. There's a lot of forces at work. Um, the the one that comes immediately to mind um, isn't new, although I think it, it continues to um, be amplified more and more. Which is just that. The, the roles and the expectations of partners in heterosexual relationships, men and women um, that are together, has really shifted. Um, I would say at this point in the last 50 years, it's been a gradual shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a lot of this has been affected by, you know, forces in our culture related to women, um, most households having, you know, two uh, people earning incomes now, working full-time. So a lot of the responsibilities um, and tasks that were sort of traditionally broken down by gender have not um, remained that way. Um, Men are having to uh, or are finding themselves more in a position of uh, taking on additional responsibilities in terms of stuff that has been traditionally labeled that of the you know the female realm in terms of mothering and parenting and housework and likewise women are you know increasingly um, earning as much money sometimes more money and acting as providers in their family so this this creates a whole new playing field in terms of how to negotiate 
you know, well, challenges. Right, because it used to be back in the day when mm-hmm. women had no identity of their own. They went from belonging to their fathers to belonging to right. their husbands. And, right. I mean, you couldn't have credit cards in their own names and people weren't right. in the workforce. I mean, and that's completely right. upended. And it's right. really interesting because you know, this is something I talk about when children come on the scene is that, you know, you get a baby, but you don't get any more Mm -hmm. time. And this is sort of the same thing. When two people are working outside of the home, Mm -hmm. you don't get any extra time to deal with all the stuff that used to happen inside the home. Right, right. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that um, there hasn't been uh, anything sort of the equivalent of like uh, the women's movement and women sort of having to go to work for men in terms of sort of uh, escorting them into sort of these, these, this new way of being. Certainly, um, if we go back even a few generations to the baby boomers, Generation Xers start to kind of be on the cusp. Um, the households that people from those eras come from didn't have parents where uh, the responsibilities were equally shared. So there was no experience of seeing this kind of modeled or done differently. Right. And now all of a sudden we're expecting Mm -hmm. people to do things differently, but Mm -hmm. I don't really think that we're being very helpful You know, it's almost like, okay, this needs to be done, but nobody's talking about how. And I think that there's some interesting ways that men are responding. And I wanted you to talk Mm -hmm. about a couple of them because, Mm -hmm. you know, I know that you're affiliated with the Gottman Institute who's like, Huge, 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 huge. I mean, anybody who wants to learn anything about mm-hmm. marriage needs to be following John Gottman. Uh, <laughs> right. Because, I mean, he's just brilliant. But this idea of, he talks about the four horsemen and about the ways that when struggles occur in relationships, mm-hmm. there are. You know, basically, there's probably more than four, but probably they can all be put into these four categories about how people deal with things. And you you talk about one of the ways in which men traditionally handle – I'm not necessarily sure I would call it conflict, although conflict is one of the things, but maybe maybe challenges in a relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So are you talking about stonewalling? Yep. Talking about stonewalling. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, yeah. So John has the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are the four different behaviors that all couples, whether or not they're thriving or their relationship is at risk, struggle with. Um, and those are criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. Um, but stonewalling in particular, so first of all, what stonewalling refers to is kind of like when a person, um, in, usually in a state of conflict, gets really quiet and becomes pretty unresponsive and kind of becomes like a stone. And so, you know, what we know, we know a few things. You know, Gottman's work is very rooted in research. It's probably some of the best research in the field of, 
in psychology and the social sciences today, um, let alone marriage and family therapy. Um, what we know is that there is a real physiological component to this, that men are more prone to um, shutting down, and usually because physiologically um, their system starts to flood and go into um, what's called DPA, which is diffuse physiological arousal. And it's, it's if, you know, the simplest way to put it for the layperson is like it's fight, flight, or freeze. You know, if you think that you're under threat, whether or not you really are, um, your nervous system may be prone to kind of hijacking you and uh, shutting you down. And this can cause all sorts of problems, as you can imagine, in relationship dynamics. Well, and it's interesting that you bring this up because my husband has – I don't really think it's a joke. He says it in a joking fashion, but mm-hmm. in my saner, more mature moments, I realize he's speaking the truth because mm-hmm. – he talks about never being able to win an argument because he's married to both a woman and a psychologist. <laughs> so, and, and I've noticed that I do have the ability to control a conversation. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because... I think especially when he's when I catch him off guard especially if he doesn't know what the topic I want to talk to him about is is that he feels blindsided and then his mm-hmm. brain just doesn't function he he can't right. keep up with me right Right, right. Well, there's also how fast people process things and people, you know, certainly whether or not you're flooded um affects whether or not you're going to be somebody who uh, stonewalls. And women stonewall, too. It's not that they don't. It's just Mm -hmm. um, more prevalent, you know, gender-wise with guys. Um, But the other thing is is that people process at different speeds, too. So there's all sorts of core differences that can start to come into play. And then when you're having to navigate things like, you know, domesticity and parenthood and careers, um, it sort of can set the stage for a lot of understandable um, but very hard challenges for folks. And, you know, because I, I hear this all the time with couples that I work with where, you know, the woman will complain that the guy just doesn't answer her, you know, that mm-hmm. his, his standard response right. is, I don't mm-hmm. know. Right. And that just serves to frustrate her mm-hmm. completely. But in some respects, I think that in that moment, that is a true statement, that he mm-hmm. really has no idea. And I think it may have to do with this flooding of, you know, I don't know whether it's because he feels like he's being attacked, although frequently mm-hmm. that can be, or sometimes mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, it's feeling no matter which way he turns, mm-hmm. it's going to be wrong. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's a it's a dance, right? All of these things happen sort of in the in the context of dynamics. And so women certainly play their parts in this. You know, Gottman's research also shows that if you bring an issue harshly to your partner, 96% of the time, chances are it's going to escalate into an argument. And women are by far more, you know, more guilty of bringing issues up harshly and so much of how we communicate is even in the nonverbals our voice tone our volume our body language and so couples can start to experience threat between one another um, on a nonverbal level pretty quickly and set these things in motion so what impact does stonewalling have I mean, on some level right. it seems obvious, but... <laughs> well, I mean, the most classic thing that, you know, we see in couples that are in distress, and certainly not the only thing, um, but a lot of the couples that come to my center are couples who get entrenched in what we call a pursuer-withdrawer dynamic, where one person is really initiating a lot of the conversations, initiating a lot of the complaints, going to the other person, making requests, making demands. Um, And again, Gottman's research shows that women um, historically tend to assume this role more. Uh, Their their level of voice in the relationship to some extent is the emotional barometer of the relationship. And so, of course, you know, if you have one person pursuing, they're sort of taking up space in a way – uh, that may be necessary and really reflective of things that have to be tended to, but um, then what you also tend to have and, and when this dynamic is happening is a partner who's more prone to shutting down, to pulling away, to not bringing up complaints, to being unresponsive. And, I mean, and sometimes it starts the other way around. It's not that the woman is, comes, you know, the complaints are as harsh. The, the guy, to begin with, is sort of in this, you know, everything's fine as long as nobody says anything mode. Um, and he is sort of the one who's keeping to himself you know, doing what he was taught to do, which is to be a provider for his family and, you know, to be present in a lot of ways. Probably his dad even wasn't in terms of how he's parenting. Um, And uh, the woman is, you know, uh, responding to what, um, you know, she's, she's asking for emotionally, not just so much in terms of tasks, but emotional connection. Yes, which is really interesting because it's how to invite him to be present emotionally when they, you know, traditionally it's been, okay, we we provide, we put a roof over the head, we make sure that there's enough food, we, mm-hmm. you know, we do all these traditional things, and mm-hmm. now that's not enough, mm-hmm. and you know, it's really hard, I think, for men especially, um, if for them they think everything's fine and then they don't really understand why their mm-hmm. partner mm-hmm. seems to be struggling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, the outrageous kind of, yeah, he's sitting on the couch like a king with his feet up and expecting her to wait on him hand and foot. Right. That's that's a whole other thing, but but the fact that he sometimes doesn't see mm-hmm. the same things that she mm-hmm. sees, right? But then gets held. 
accountable yeah. in a not inviting way. Right. Right. Well, it's really a setup. I mean, I think that um, men and women in our society have been socialized to deal with feelings and talk about feelings very differently from a very young age. I mean, if you look at a lot of the studies around sort of, you know, what's encouraged in girls and what's discouraged in girls and what's encouraged in boys and what's discouraged in boys, they st- it's still, you know, I think it's getting better, but it's still very different things. And so um, women tend to come into relationships wanting to connect through talking, through um, using a language that very much um, is reflective of emotions and feelings um, and really sort of valuing close proximity in terms of eye contact and a certain manner of being. And it's not that men don't long for intimacy and connection, too. I think men very much long for intimacy and connection. Um, And I think some men are able very much to, you know, come into conversations with their wife um, and be these things and maybe actually experience that their partner isn't able to reciprocate. So, you know, I don't want to run the risk of stereotyping, but simultaneously I do think that there – you know, I've certainly seen many well-intentioned good guys in here um, who say, like, I just don't have the language. I don't have the words. Um, I feel like I'm in a country where everybody's speaking, you know, a language I haven't been taught. Um, and right, and and they're going to make and they're going to make mistakes in the attempt mm-hmm. to communicate in that language, mm-hmm. and hopefully, mm-hmm. are given some credit for mm-hmm. trying as opposed. Mm-hmm. You know the infamous um, John Kennedy. I'm a I'm a donut. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, this is happily yeah. ever after. Is just the beginning on WebTalkRadio.net. I'm Leslie Dorries, and I'm talking with the director of the Northampton Center for Couples Therapy, Carrie Lusignan, about the things men can do to improve their relationships. And, you know, if you're a good guy and just want to have a happy wife and loving family, I invite you to contact me immediately and find out if my Hero Husband Project is right for you. You can send me an email or give me a call and learn how you can be in an intimate, loving, and relationship an intimate and loving relationship in an authentic way. You can reach me at area code 919-924-0463. Again, 919-924-0463. Or you can reach me at leslie, L-E-S-L-I, at foundationscoachingnc.com. Again, that's F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N-S. Coaching, N is in Nancy, C is in charlie.com. And I want to get on to ways that um, tools that men can use to make things better. And, Carrie, you identified five of them. And I want to talk about the first three. You talk about accept that you're not the fixer, which, boy, that's a big one for men. They see a problem and think they need to fix it. Mm -hmm. Then you talk about giving yourself permission to take breaks. And then the Mm -hmm. third one is really kind of – I read this and went, okay, Mm Look mm-hmm. fear in the face. So mm-hmm. what are those three and why are they so important? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, the, the first piece about uh, give yourself permission not to be the fixer of the relationship, and, but also what goes with that is to not 
take on the whole role of being the person who's responsible for things. Mm-hmm. I think it feel the first thing I want to say is I think it it feels important to say that it's nuanced. It's not that women don't try to fix things. In fact, I think women, which is a whole other show, right? Get right, and I think they do it in a different thing, way. Yeah, but mm-hmm. they do it in a different way, you know. Um, but I, I think there's a ten, there can be a tendency to want to just make things better um, and to do that by way of problem solving. Um, I remember reading in um, The Science of Trust by Gottman years ago how he talked about um, different ways people try to solve problems, um, one of them being problem solving, (laughs) different ways people try to resolve conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember John saying that what he found in his research, um, which was so interesting, I thought, was actually that problem solving for couples is not effective. It actually often can make things worse. That what most people are looking for in a relationship when they're up against, you know, conflict or challenge is empathy, attunement, validation, um, just feeling like their partner is making space for them and that it's reciprocated. Um, And so, I think it's a very free, it could be a very freeing thing, you know, to say, you know, you're, you're actually not responsible for fixing this. And, and the other thing I think that's important to add to that is that most, most research shows that most conflicts couples have are not um, the fault of one person. Like over 90% of the time, it's both people. So. Say that again. Please say that again. Yeah. Yeah, the research shows that um, over 90% of the time, conflict between couples is not one person's fault more than the other, that there's something happening in between them in the dynamic that is mm-hmm. actually more the culprit. And so I think the more all of us, and certainly guys in this case, can sort of take a deep breath and remind ourselves that it's not necessarily our job to fix things. Um, And simultaneously that, you know, because, well, you know, unless they're in that rare percentage over 90% of the time, you know, when conflicts occur, it's related to both people. They're not to blame either. So important because if you think you're all to blame, you're going to make your partner all to blame, you know. Yeah, that's the whole thing about, you know, well, I'm right, which means the other person has to be wrong. And in actuality, in many cases, either both both times you're both right or both times you're both wrong, depending on how you want to look at it. And it isn't, to me, it's it's a question of opinion as opposed to fact. But Mm -hmm. as long as we're fighting about opinion, nobody's going to win. Right. That's true. Right. Um. Want me to move on to the next one? Yeah. So what's about this permission to take breaks? Right, right. So um, at our center, we use heart rate monitors with all couples because, again, based on Gottman's research, we know that when couples uh, get into the thick of it, um, their heart rates will go up. And anything over 95 beats a minute for most people means you're toast. You're not really, you really shouldn't be talking. Like Exactly. Your, your body is literally like redistributing where it puts blood and it's not to your brain. 
it's to your extremities, so you can either run or clobber something. You know, hormones are being secreted that compromise your ability to think straight, to remember things, to act from a place um, that's relational. And so uh, it's so it's so hard, but it is so important when things start to go off track to take a deep breath, to slow it down, and if you can't or if you, your partner can't, to sort of have a, a way to excuse yourself kindly. And then the, the other piece that's so key to this is when you take a break, you really have to take a break. You cannot continue to think about it and talk about it and ruminate on it because if you do, your body will continue to physically respond as if you're under threat and it will just reinforce the negativity between the two of you. Right. And for those of you who don't have heart rate monitors, although everybody who runs around with a Fitbit now does, but I, I use a down and dirty 1 to 10 scale, which is kind of mm-hmm. the same thing, where 1, mm-hmm. everything is really calm, 10, somebody's going out the second story window, don't know who it is. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I tell people, it's like, if you're at a 7 or an 8, stop. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's, again, you're flooded, you can't think, mm-hmm. you're headed to a fight, it's only going to get worse. Your goal is to go calm down. Right. And then you can re-engage. So right. what that's is correct. looking fear in the face? Because most of us really don't want to be doing that. We just want fear to right. go away. Right, yeah. So um, Stan Tacken, who's another biggie in the couples therapy field, talks a lot about the importance of couples to co-regulate each other. That's, um, you know, that's what all this is about, right? It's about regulation. That's the technical term for staying calm, keeping your heart rate down so that you can act from your best self. And at the very least, we want to be able to be doing that on our own as an individual. So that's when we take breaks, if we can't do that, and and then we come back into it. Um, But the other piece is um, that it it can be um, inherently calming, actually, to make eye contact with your partner, particularly when one or both of you is feeling threatened, to soften your voice, to lean in a little bit towards the other. And when we're in distress, you know, the benefit of being in partnership, hopefully, is that we have somebody who sees that we're in trouble and can alter what they're doing in a way that's responsive to that. So it's a nonverbal thing. It, it, uh-huh. it's, and so in that sense, you don't have to remember anything fancy. You know, it's just, you know, catching yourself if you're looking away, remembering to gaze at your partner, look in their eyes, slow yourself down, take a deep breath. Um, and really just focus on the nonverbals. So that kind of leads into the number, f- the fourth thing you talk about, I think, is the repair, repair, repair. Yeah. Part of, is that also not part of the repair is when you are able to calm yourself down when, you're, when your partner's spun, spun up, that you can soften, that you can... Yeah, it has the poten- it has the potential to be part of the repair, but it's not. Um, they they don't necessarily go hand in hand. I think it can be a precursor to repair. Okay. But, you know, just keeping your heart rate, you know, level, making eye contact is also just a way to co-regulate and have good dialogue between the two of you that doesn't escalate. You may not be to the point where you're 
you know, repairing, um, but maybe it's not something that needs repair. I mean, when people are trying to navigate parenting and things like that, they need to have good conversations. Um, and so what we're talking about really here is pre- preventative measures, if possible. Um, repair, uh, again, is, is much more based on um, working with coming back together after something has gone awry and trying to repair what has gone awry. Um, And there's different levels to it. But I think one important thing to say is just the longer couples go without coming back together after a conflict, the more harm it does to the relationship. And cumulatively over time, if couples have a history of not coming back together fairly quickly, that will start to um, erode trust and erode intimacy. And so I think the most important piece of repair, we're not really talking about even apologizing, although that certainly could be a piece of it. We're talking about can you initiate going back to your partner and not making a big deal out of things and extending an olive branch and saying, hey, you know, that didn't go very well. How about we sit down and try it again? You know, all I was really saying was dot, dot, dot. You know, I think maybe I didn't hear you. It's a willingness to come back in with goodwill, be open to a better process, and not make a big deal out of the fact that things, you know, didn't go well to begin with. And sometimes that may include an apology, but it it doesn't always. So the people who spend days not talking to each other, yeah, this is not a good thing. They're they're obviously not following this repair paradigm. No, I mean over time it's just not tenable. Um, and people often don't. I feel like it's important to say. I think a lot of times when couples get to that place, it's not even malicious. Like I'm not speaking to you. I don't even know that it's always about power and control. I think we get. Um, so steeped in negative sentiment and fear um, that any interaction is going to escalate, that we start to retreat to our respective corners. Um, I, I think when people don't come together and repair, it's often um, symptomatic of patterns um, of failed repair in the past, although sometimes you do have people who are just conflict avoidant and stonewall, and that's... Right. It's well, I mean, an individual and, and, issue. and a lot of times it's really hard because I'm really hurt, and mm-hmm. and the idea of coming back to you or even being open to you coming back to right. me can be really right. hard. Which brings right. up the fifth one, which I'm almost thinking should be the first one, <laughs> where you talk about. How to get help early. Yeah. 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 Um, Most couples wait an average of six years before they go see a couple's therapist. I mean, if you think about it in terms of other medical illnesses, it would be the equivalent of finding a lump on you and, and letting it metastasize before you get help, you know, for a long time. And um, the sad thing is, is that, you know, the models that we have now, the research that we have now uh, has really taught us a lot. And couples therapy can be effective even to a couple in crisis. But if people can come in proactively and preventatively, uh, they can avoid a lot of heartbreak and, um, their family can thrive. 
Right, and I know that's what you do, and I know that's what I do. And, you know, a lot right. of times people think about it as as a punishment, that somehow they've done something wrong. But it right. really a lot is of stigma. This, this dynamic of living with somebody else and working through these relatively common, I mean, challenges that most couples run into you know we all we all think we're alone and you know I mean I just remember when my kids were little and I was struggling with something and I would go to my friends and go okay well how do you get them to sleep through the night or how do you get them to Mm -hmm. how do you potty train them I mean there was absolutely no stigma about not knowing and by the way raising children is quote-unquote natural right (laughs) but somehow this idea of you know how do you how do you have a conversation with your partner about your in-laws or right. <laughs> you know all of right. these things that right. you know how do, how do you decide what furniture to buy for the bedroom i mean these right. things that seem so silly and and easy but they're the same kind of thing that we just don't always know how to do it Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think um, there's so much uh, stigma still associated with um, relationship distress. And, you know, all you have to do is go on Facebook and look at what most people choose to post, which is sort of the sunny highlights of mm-hmm. their family and their relationship. Um, and I think we'd all sort of sleep in a little better and breathe a little easier if we realize that relationships are hard. They're hard, and never in human history have people lived this long and been, you know, often, not always, had the opportunity to be partnered with one person mm-hmm. for, you know, that entire time and really had to rely on them to be everything, you know, everything. Right. So and couple that- therapy is... Critical, I think, yeah. Well, and the thing is, and part of the reason why I love having um, you guys on who who are affiliated with the Gottman Institute is because there is real information. I mean, this yeah. is not like yeah, made-up stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, over 40 years' worth of research at this point on, you know, over 5,000 couples, I think. It's um, a pretty impressive body of research. and. Yeah. Um, John's been a major contributor to the field. So speaking speaking of John and speaking of you and speaking of all yeah. of this, can you let people know where they can learn more specifically about your organization? Yeah. And really about, you know, I mean, because, you know, my part of the reason why I do this show is to destigmatize this thing. It's like, right. you know, when, I, I don't know if you read this recently, but, you know, Anna Ferris put posted relatively recently that she was actually sorry that, you know, she kind of put out all these really positive things about her, you know, her marriage as opposed to, you know, really helps sometimes if the people, not not the affair kind of stuff, but the, but, you know, but the people who, the celebrities who people follow, it's like, yeah, we're having a little bit of difficulty with this and we went and go and we went and sought help. Right, right, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, um, my center uh, is a a group practice, 
And we've been around eight years, and all we do is treat couples. Um, I created it after I had trained with the Gottman Institute um, eight years ago, well, more than eight years ago. At first, it was just me, um, because I was just overwhelmed with couples really needing to see a specialist, and couples therapy really is a specialty. Yes, so we see about 100 couples a week. Uh, it's all we do. Um, we see um, m- all of those couples mostly for weekly sessions. Our sessions are always 90 minutes long. Um, and then we also offer private intensive retreats uh, because there's a lot of people who don't live near anything like this and um, they can't get to us weekly. So, um, yeah, it's really it's our passion. Yeah, because people and, people and my, like you and me don't do this, yeah, you know, yeah. without being passionate yeah. about it. Because right, because right. it's 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 rewarding work, but it's tough work. It's um, rewarding work, and it has a huge ripple effect. I think every you know when you help a couple, you help your community, you help their children, you help generations to come. And I'm just realizing I don't think I said my website. <laughs> Sorry, no, you didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just NorthamptonCouplesTherapy.com, and Northampton just has one H in it. Um, so you know we're we have a blog, and we're on Facebook, and we have a website, and there's a wealth of information on there for people. And it's absolutely fantastic information because the Thanks. truth is we actually do know what makes relationship w- right. relationships work. And even as expectations for them have changed, good right. relationships do not just happen, people. Taking control right. of your relationship and making it what you want it to be is within your ability if you have the courage to take action. So the question is, what kind of help do you need, and when are you going to make it happen? So hopefully you'll keep listening to the show and listening to my wonderful guests. And until next week, stay loving. 